0: Hello everyone and welcome to today's edition of After the Final Whistle here on WSOE 89.3 FM or if you're listening after the fact on podcast.com or Apple Podcasts. I am your host Brad Clear. It is Friday, November 15th. We're a couple weeks into the NBA season. This episode today, we're going to look around the NBA. We're going to talk about the news yesterday of Carmelo getting back into the NBA, signing with the Portland Trailblazers, we're going to talk about Porzingis, we're going to talk about Siakam, we're going to talk about the Cleveland Cavaliers, um, we're going to talk about lots of things around the NBA, and then at the end we'll touch on the uh, Miles Garrett situation uh, as well with the NFL. So let's just get right into it, and let's start off with the news coming in. Uh, real hot, Woj bomb, Carmelo Anthony signing with the Portland Trailblazers you know, I was watching the Knicks and Mavs on TNT, got that tweet notification, and it was just a, my my reaction wasn't like a whoa or a wow, it was just like a, oh, hmm, okay, that makes sense, because, look, we look at the situation that the Portland Trailblazers were in right now, right, they're 4-8. and eight. And as this is something we've all noticed and I've talked about on the show before, we look at what their team is made up of and we look at the four specifically, you know, there is a significant amount of depth lost as far as shooting and defensive ability and options at the four in the offseason season with Alfred Camino signing for the mid-level exception over three years with Orlando, Mo Harkless being part of the trade for Hassan Whiteside, as well as Myers Leonard. So, coming into the season, you know, I talked before about how I like the idea of not making the Whiteside trade and um, running with a Zach Collins 5, Mo Harkless, Myers Leonard 4 duo. It's not what they did. They started the season with Whiteside at the 5, and then... Uh, Collins at the four. Collins, as we know, now out for a significant period of time with a shoulder injury. So they had been giving you know, significant minutes at that four spot to Mario Hizonia and Anthony Tolliver. Now, I like Mario Hizonia probably more than other people. I still acknowledge that that is not a player that you, if you are intending to be a winning team and a playoff contending team, you are not playing... Mario Hizonia, significant minutes. Anthony Tolliver, a nice veteran player at the four who can shoot from deep. Again, though, not a player if you're a contending team that you want to give a lot of minutes to. Now, of course, the situation Portland is in, injury-driven, it's out of their control. But you look at what they had at the four. You know, you have those two guys. You can play Nasir Little down from the three at the four. You know, they have Scal as well. Spelling Hassan Whiteside, but he can play a little four as well The point is the options are not great And the team is four and eight And I'm surprised I am actually expected Portland to be The sixth best team in the Western Conference this season I was surprised and am surprised At how they've been playing so far this year So in that sense, you look at the situation At the four, they needed another option They needed something for this team in general Some sort of move Just something to add, maybe some sort of spark. And Carmelo, look, the contract is totally non-guaranteed. It's incredibly low risk. So it makes sense. You take that situation I just mentioned with injuries at the four, you take into account that it is a totally non-guaranteed contract before January 7th, it's super low risk. And if Carmelo isn't totally terrible defensively, then this is not a bad idea. Now that's asking a lot because quite frankly, when he last played last fall, early winter for Houston, and then before that with Oklahoma City, he is not someone who can be an effective defender. He's someone who will get eaten up in the pick and roll and cannot switch effectively. Do I think that Carmelo is good? No, I don't. If I was Portland, would I have made this signing? Probably not. But again, as I said, it makes sense. It's an option with a veteran at the four who can provide you a semblance of a spark and gives you another option that, in theory, you can get scoring output from at the four. This team needed a body that could produce and play 15 minutes to 20 minutes a game at the four. Now, again, this may totally not work at all. Carmelo just may be completely washed, which, I mean, he had shown to be washed last year and then before that with Oklahoma City, and maybe he's just completely washed and it's done, right? But even if it is, it's totally non-guaranteed. The risk is so low for a team like Portland that, in this instance, I do not mind them signing Carmelo, even though I myself would not have made the move. I get it. It makes sense. Now, we look at Carmelo, right? Carmelo has had a negative net rating in the last four, in four of his last five seasons. As a catch-and-shoot three-point shooter, he's not the best. In his limited time with Houston last year, he shot 32% from three. He's never been a guy who can be relied upon to be a consistent catch-and-shoot three-point shooting guy. That's just not him. And as we mentioned also, on switches and on pick-and-rolls, he's slow afoot. And he's washed. So there are a lot of things that would indicate that it is not a that he is not a player who will provide a significant positive impact for Portland. But if you're Portland, you have nothing to lose. You're four and eight, you need an option at the four, you need some sort of spark, and you don't have any guaranteed money in there. So I'm fine with Portland making this move. Monday night, perhaps Carmelo's first game. As a Portland Trailblazer, the Portland Trailblazers play the Houston Rockets. Perfect narrative, perfect story there. So I'm very interested to see how this goes. I was not expecting this at all. But again, if any team was going to sign Carmelo, this was the situation, the team, and the circumstance for it to happen. Now moving away from Carmelo and going to his old stomping grounds, of course very... Timely based off of last night's game. Let's go to the Madison Square Garden. Or the Madison Square Garden. Let's go to Madison Square Garden. And let's talk about the New York Knicks and the Dallas Mavericks from last night. The first shout-out here, I usually do shout-outs at the end. Got to do it up here. Frank Nealakina. His defense late in the game in the fourth quarter with five fouls on Doncic was incredible. Throughout this game, Frank was a pest on defense disrupting passing lanes, playing physical, in-your-face defense, just being a nuisance on the perimeter. Dennis Smith Jr., having his first, or having his best game of the season, really someone he was getting good dribble, penetration, was able to create offense for himself and others through doing so, has hops, has athleticism, was an above-the-rim guy um, with putback dunks during the game, was rebounding. He's a good rebounding guard just based on his ability to get up, was creating for others, as I just mentioned, and scoring for himself. Now, I'm not crazy about Dennis Smith Jr., but this was a great showing by him last night. So, in addition to Frank, bringing it on the defensive side of the ball. But, to me, the interesting thing coming out of this game is a larger discussion of Kristaps Porzingis. Now, late in the game, I think it was around with a minute 30 left, there was a sequence to me that on the defensive side of the ball, subsequently followed by them on the offensive side of the ball that directly involved Porzingis on both ends that, to me, really gave the ultimate final push of momentum and initial sealing of the win for the Knicks. And so it was Julius Randle got the ball and he was uh, backing Porzingis down and Porzingis flopped to draw the offensive foul With a minute 25, a minute 30 left in a tied, closely contested game like that, you're never going to get that call. Never. Stay up, play defense. Instead he flopped, no call, whistle silent, Randall gets an easy layup. Dallas gets the ball, going back on the other end. Porzingis gets the ball. Awkward post-up, then takes a little jumper where he was trying to force a foul. It was a very forced post-up, it was not organic. The shot itself, he was totally playing for the foul. It was a bad shot, missed that, and that that was the sort of initial beginning of the end for the Mavericks and the beginning of sealing the win for the Knicks. And the thing with Porzingis, we look at the Mavericks right now as a team. They have the second-best offense in the NBA behind Boston and at times have been the best offense in the league so far this season. They are better when Porzingis is off the floor. Porzingis has a negative net rating thus far. Now, of course, it does not seem to matter because of one, I just mentioned how great their offense is, and two, Luka Doncic looking like, um, I mean, one of the 10, nine best players, eight best players in the entire NBA, and behind Giannis, the most suitable MVP candidate in the league thus far. He's a triple-double machine. He's a wonder kid. He's incredible. So it hasn't greatly affected their overall offensive output, but they are a better... This is just statistically backed up. They are a better team when Porzingis is off the floor. And it's really remarkable, too. I guess it's a testament just how good Doncic has been to see how great they've been offensively with Porzingis not meshing with the rest of the team at all. Now... The thing with Porzingis, which we saw in this game, emphasized by this game, although he has this incredible size, right? He's seven foot three, he's super long, he's such a mismatch because he's so mobile and athletic for someone of his size. He can shoot well from deep and he's so mobile and all that. He kind of, and this isn't necessarily really anything all that novel or new, he kind of just plays smaller than he is. Now, this is something that's been talked about by other talking heads. You know, if you put someone like Marcus Smart on Porzingis, he can completely neutralize him. You know, Porzingis doesn't play with a seven foot three stature, he plays smaller than he is. And if you get an effective, physical, smaller perimeter defender on him, you can neutralize Porzingis. And the post-up, I just mentioned the post-up there at the end of the game after he flopped and then Randall made the layup and then he had the post-up on the other end of the court and tried to draw a foul and it was just an awkward forced post-up. The post-up is not a part of Porzingis' game. It's nearly non-existent. And if it is going to be a part of his game, it's going to take a significant period of time for him to establish it as such. So forcing the post-up in that circumstance was a bad move But just looking at Porzingis, as far as the post-up part of his game, it's a non-factor. And it's not effective. And really, with Porzingis, the way you optimize Porzingis is you take advantage of just how incredible of a unicorn that he is as far as his ability to shoot in half-size on the perimeter. And... More so, again, I talked about the smaller defenders being able to effectively neutralize him. He's not a physical player. I don't want to. He's not soft. He's not soft. I would not call him soft, but he's not a physical player. Never has been, and he's still an incredible player. Don't get me wrong. He's great, but it's just noticeable that the, I guess, forcing the interior, uh, post up game for Porzingis in this Dallas offense, it's just not going to be effective. And it should not be a part of his or the team's arsenal. And really, it's not its not something um, of negative, greatly negative value. It's just something to notice. And eventually, when it's all sorted out and once Porzingis meshes with the rest of this offense, who knows how good they can be just with how good they've been, obviously, by being the second best offense in the league with him not meshing at all. I think it's interesting too, looking at the on off slits of Porzingis. You know, I'm sure that there's an element in there that's somewhat influenced by the fact that their team, largely outside of Doncic and Porzingis, and this is something I use to, I guess, underestimate them in the offseason, their team is largely made up of guys who are very high quality bench players in an ideal situation. DeLon Wright, Seth Curry, Dorian Finney-Smith, Tim Hardaway Jr., Maxi Kleba, Dwight Powell. Largely, these are guys who are very high-quality bench players. Now, Dwight Powell's been very good this year, so he's a starting-caliber player, probably. But outside of that, the rest of this group largely, again, high-quality bench players. So their starting five is a bit lower quality, whereas their bench is very good. So I'm sure maybe that in some form contributes to that on-off split, but it's just something to notice and monitor for this Dallas team moving forward with Porzingis and Doncic. Now, we just talked about Doncic being this absolute monster, this wonder kid, and playing as the second guy in my mind so far, as far as the MVP candidacy is concerned, but perfectly suited for this conversation is Pascal Siakam, who to me is not only the most improved player in the NBA coming off of winning the award last year, but I think he's got to be third in the discussion with Giannis and Doncic for the MVP. The jumps and leaps that Siakam has been able to take and is taking on a year-to-year basis is astounding, right? So two years ago, the pre Kawhi year, the last year with Lowry and DeRozan, I used to love watching them on League Pass because they had this great bench where they had Jakub Pertl and Siakam and... Either OGN Unobi or No Norman Powell and Fred Van Vliet and DeLon Wright. It was a great bench. I used to love watching that team's bench. And I watched Siakam and I'm like, alright, this is a nice, good, solid, high-quality bench player who can be a versatile defender across multiple positions and can have a reliable, dependable three-point shot and is a super role player. A great guy to have on your bench as a winning team. Then last year, obviously emerges to be a borderline all-star starting caliber player, a stud. Gets his four-year max this offseason and is now playing like one of the 10 to 15 best players in the NBA and remarkably has gotten more efficient despite his usage going up by 10%. Statistically, he is comparable as far as his number of years in the league, statistically, to Kawhi Leonard's stats at that point as far as years into his career as well. The stats are very, very eerily similar. And this Toronto team, it was interesting talking about them before the season of, you know, at what point does Masai want to cash in on Kyle Lowry or Marcus Saul or Serge Ibaka's value? If they're say the seventh or sixth best team in the East or fifth best team in the East, do they keep all of them? Do they try to trade them for value? They gave Lowry the one-year extension, and it was the topic of discussion of does this make him more tradable? Maybe Miami becomes a big suitor for him. How good is this Toronto team on a year, um, on a full year without Kawhi there? They played well with Kawhi without Kawhi last year, but for a full year and with maybe wanting to retool for their future and trading Lowry or Gasol or Ibaka or all three of them or one of them or two of them how good would this team be and quite frankly this team right now is the fourth best team in the eastern Con- eh, fourth or fifth best team in the eastern conference they're not as good as Boston them and Miami are very comparable very similar teams but the point is is this team is clearly in the high second tier Of the Eastern Conference. And that is a result. Of Pascal Siakam's play. He's got to be. I don't know how many. Back to back. If any. Back to back. Most improved player awards have been won. By an individual player. If it's even ever happened before. But. Right now. Pascal Siakam is in line. To get that award. Because. He's playing at an absurd level. Again, the remarkable thing. Of course, the statistics up. But the efficiency improving with the usage going up by 10%, that just doesn't happen. Just based on logic, that's supposed to be the opposite. And it is not for Pascal Siakam. Pascal Siakam going from a nice bench piece to a borderline all-star to a genuine superstar and being responsible for how good this Toronto team is who, at worst, is the fifth-best team in the East. You could very well say they're better than Miami. You could say they're a little bit worse. I wouldn't criticize either standing, but they are a very, very good team and are at the top of that second tier in the Eastern Conference. And now there's no way that you're trading any of those veterans. You're going to go as far as you possibly can with Siakam. And moving forward, Siakam serves as an incredible tool to recruit free agent talent to this Toronto team in what is largely not a free agent destination just based off of how good he is and how much he is able to progress on a year-to-year basis. So, shout out to Pascal Siakam because once you think he's taking the leap, there's another leap to take. And he's a genuine MVP candidate and genuinely for the second straight year, so far, the most improved player in the league. Now, moving from Toronto, let's go to the Cleveland Cavaliers. This is a team who I've kind of taken a notice to so far this season. And, you know, they lost to Miami in pretty large fashion and are now 4-7. and But I kind of like this Cleveland Cavaliers team. You know, I don't look at them and say that this is a very bad team. This is a... They're kind of decent. They're not good. They're kind of decent. And if you get to looking at the numbers behind it, I think there's a few things that you can pinpoint for why this Cleveland team has looked decent and not as a bottom-of-the-NBA-caliber team thus far. The net rating and the overall productivity of their starting five, Tristan Thompson, Kevin Love... Chetty Osman, Colin Sexton, Darius Garland. For some time, for a period of time, they had one of the best 10 net ratings of any five-man group in the league. They had been out scoring opponents by 11 points per 100 possessions, five of them on the court. And with John Beeline, the new head coach coming from Michigan, they are playing some interesting, fun basketball. Kevin Love, Tristan Thompson, handling the ball on the perimeter, running pick and rolls together. Tristan Thompson, in his contract year, is shooting threes now. He's still a good passer. He's scoring. He's still a great rebounder. Tristan Thompson's having the best year of his career thus far. He has been very good. Kevin Love, who, again, the whole topic of discussion from my end and many's end was when does he get traded? How much value does he have on that contract? Do they buy out Tristan Thompson? Is there a way they could trade Tristan Thompson and take back longer term money and maybe get an asset with it? But with how good this team has been playing, I mean, the record is not anything good, but they've been playing better and it's benefiting the development of Colin Sexton and Darius Garland. Now, Garland has not played well at all thus far, but still... The system being in place and how good this five-man group is playing, you want that level of cohesion and that le- uh, level of production around your young players so they're in a stable system in which they can develop and can improve. Now, Colin Sexton, Colin Sexton again, the discussion will remain of is Colin Sexton a guy who is a major contributor or can contribute to a contending team? Based on his small size and his defense and based off of his lack of passing and being a point guard, but really isn't a point guard because all he he does is get buckets and his assist ratio is comparable to that of a big who doesn't pass. But Colin Sexton just gets buckets. I remember going last winter to see the Sixers host a game against the Cavs and the Cavs beat the Sixers. Uh, Kendall Jenner was sitting in the front row I forget the date but that was the game she was at and Sexton was just incredible that game he was hitting shot after shot after shot and he was getting himself good looks and Sexton's progression from the beginning of last year to the end of last year and into this year he has improved steadily he blows by guys he gets to the rim With ease. His three-point shooting has improved. The mid-range shot is always there for him. He just gets buckets. And yeah, the assists are not there. The passing is not there. The creation for others is not there. Can him and Garland play together long-term? Defensively, is he going to be a guy who can be effective at the end of games in playoff situations? Again, all these questions exist. But... Colin Sexton's offensive development from the beginning of last year to now, it just keeps getting better. He keeps improving. He's a genuine bucket getter. You throw him the ball, he's going to find a way to score. He can shoot from deep. He gets to the rim. He's got great speed. He genuinely blows by defenders. So I am a fan of Sexton's, especially watching him. Garland, again, he has not played well. There's no way to sugarcoat it. You'd like to see improvement come throughout the season. I expect it to come, but he has not played well thus far. And you look at this Cleveland team, with John Bayline as the coach, as I just mentioned, it's going to be interesting to see what their record is, how good they are, how bad they are as the season goes along in terms of what is the trade value for Kevin Love on his existing contract on a four-year deal for $130 million. What is Kevin Love's trade value? We've been, ever since he signed that extension, which I wasn't a fan of them giving him, after LeBron left, that's been the debate amongst everyone, is how valuable is that contract? What could they trade it for? And then looking at Tristan Thompson being in the last year of his deal, depending on how they keep playing and how well that five-man group functions, it's interesting to think of You know, maybe they'll still have a bad record and get a nice draft pick without having to trade Kevin Love, without having to buy out or trade Tristan Thompson. And maybe they say, hey, let's keep this group together and let's just keep a nice, stable system with our new head coach to benefit the development of our young players. Now, do I expect them to re-sign Tristan Thompson after the season? I don't know. That's a different question. But for the rest of the season, just based off of the fact if the value is not there, or a trade, or if in terms of for Kevin Love or even for Thompson, is there value in just keeping them all together for the rest of this year and just continuously going with this group rather than buying Thompson out or seeking a trade at all costs for Kevin Love? It's just an interesting thought. So I kind of like this Cleveland Cavaliers team. Now, of course, they're not a good team. They're not a playoff team, not even close. But they haven't been terrible. They haven't been bad. They've been interesting to watch. And somewhat decent. Is that guaranteed to sustain sustain throughout the season? Not necessarily. And maybe even likely it is not. But for now, through these 11 games, the Cavs being kind of decent, having a nice system in place, Sexton playing well, and Tristan Thompson playing out of his mind, running pick and rolls with Kevin Love, it's just been fun to watch. An interesting thing to watch also, with the Cavs is the Hawks trade the Hawks trade up in this past draft with New Orleans to get up to get DeAndre Hunter this is not something that I've seen discussed and perhaps it really can't be discussed because it's only been 11 games and who knows how the Cavs will progress the rest of the season but when the Hawks traded up with New Orleans and they traded eight and 17 and 35 in last year's draft. And took on Solomon Hill, who then who they then traded to Memphis along with Plumlee and took back Chandler Parsons, opened up a roster spot. When they made that trade, they included the pick that they had gotten from Cleveland in 2020. The 2020 top 10 protected first round pick that they had from Cleveland. They included that pick. And at the time, I think my assumption and everyone else's was, okay, that they're just trading two second round picks because how are the Cavs not going to be one of the five worst teams or three worst teams in the NBA? Top 10 protected, it's not even a question, just be two seconds. So far, with the Cavs being kind of decent and not totally bad, If this sustains the Cavs' current level of play, that pick, which I'm sure that Atlanta viewed and almost everyone viewed as likely to convey as two seconds, that pick, if Cleveland sustains its current play, could be a decent pick in the back end of the lottery and a pick in the teens, which would then provide New Orleans, who already has a war chest of ammo of picks um, and draft capital now and in the future, it would provide them another nice late lottery pick for what they thought was likely getting in two second round picks. And from Atlanta's standpoint is another asset that could have been a good value for them that they traded and would have essentially traded 8, seventeen, 35, and maybe say pick uh 12 or 13 or 11 in this year's draft, all to get up for DeAndre Hunter, which I've talked before, I like DeAndre Hunter, I like him on Atlanta, that was a lot of assets to dispose of to get Hunter, but this could make it an even higher cost. So, that's just something to monitor. It doesn't affect Cleveland, it's out of their control, but it's Cleveland's pick. So, actually I take that back, it's completely in Cleveland's control as to who gets the pick and where it lands. But it's just interesting to look at because that was a pick that was not factored in for what it may convey as from either side as far as the trade package was concerned. So that could greatly benefit New Orleans, who again, with the great improved play from Brandon Ingram, um, with the war chest of capital they have coming into the future, that could be a nice piece for that team. So that's just something to watch with looking at Cleveland this season. Now, the last NBA topic I want to touch on, and this is a topic that nobody expected, I didn't expect, and am stunned, frankly, that it has happened and is occurring, Andrew Wiggins is good. Andrew Wiggins, in his first five seasons in the NBA, his splits of shooting from the field and from three and from the free throw line 44% 44% from the field, 33% from three, 73.5% from the free throw line. That's his average over the first five seasons of his career. This season, so far, Andrew Wiggins is shooting 47.8% from the field, 36% from three, and basically the same from the free throw line. His threes, his three-point shot attempts, is now higher than in the past, and makes up a third of all of his shot attempts. His mid-range shots, last year was 35% of his total shots taken, it is now only 20% of the shots he has taken. His usage is up. His turnovers are down. 45% of his shots have been within 8 feet of the basket. Last year, that was only 38%. Now, these are all stats um, from Bobby Marks, from Basketball Reference, and from Positive Residual. And then lastly here, combining it and putting it all together from last year to this year, is free throw percentage. Last year, 69%. This year, 73%. Three-point percentage. Last year, 33%. This year, 36%. Assists up by one. Rebounds, up. Blocks, up. Turnovers, as I mentioned, down. Turnover percentage from 9% to 6%. True shooting percentage, 49% to 56%. Effective field goal percentage, up. Put it all together, Andrew Wiggins is now good. He is more efficient. He is a better playmaker. He is having a better shot selection or he's carrying out better shot selection. He's shooting more threes. He's shooting more closer to the basket. He's not taking as much um, mid-range shots. He's not holding the ball, holding the ball, holding the ball. He's a better playmaker. This, to me, is a revelation. I, I mean, at this point, very rarely, and maybe it's a product of just looking at the new president of basketball operations, Gerson Rosas, who came over from Houston and new head coach on a full-time basis, Ryan Saunders, this entire organizational philosophy and overhaul of what the organization does in a basketball sense, perhaps that's unlocked the real Andrew Wiggins. But to me, you just watch him play and look at these numbers, he's genuinely just a better basketball player. He plays smarter. He plays with better efficiency. He plays the... um. Better percentage shots. He finds his teammates and he's improved at shooting threes. He's improved at finishing at the rim. And we look at this Minnesota team who is playing very well, very well thus far. Carl Anthony Towns is an absolute monster. Shocker, but still, he's an absolute monster. Was before, but he's unlocked even further. And With Teague and Napier being hurt recently, they've been playing these lineups, and this is something that Zach Lowe, I saw this the other day in one of the games they were playing, and then read about it again today um, in Zach Lowe's 10 Things article, and realized, okay, I wasn't the only one who noticed this. They were playing lineups where they had Carl Anthony Towns, Josh Okoji, Bob Covington, uh, Jarrett Culver, and Wiggins. And so in that lineup, you have five guys who can all shoot threes, four guys who are wings, and then you have Towns. So no guards and just four wings and a big in Towns. And when all those guys can shoot from deep, you have Wiggins who can penetrate to the rim. You have Towns who's so good on the interior. You have Jarrett Culver. You have Bob Covington, who we all know I love Robert Covington can shoot threes, a bit streaky, but can shoot threes, can rebound well um, as an offensive rebounder, can deflect and be a major disruptor in the passing lanes and be a top, top perimeter defender in the league. That's an interesting group to throw out there. And this Minnesota team, they play a modern game. They, I don't want to say take risks, but they're willing to experiment They're willing to try out different things. They're really being innovative in how they deploy their lineups, in how they group certain players into their rotation. And Towns being a monster and Wiggins becoming good, just like Phoenix, who has been a revelation this year, Minnesota has been a revelation this year. And I think it's largely able to be credited to the fact that Gersten Rosas, coming from Houston, who, as we all know, They prioritize the highest percentage shots. You shoot threes or you get to the rim and you have a ton of wings who can switch defensively. A modern Maury Ball team who plays with pace. Having someone from there coming into Minnesota, overhauling the organization, and having Ryan Saunders, a young, talented head coach, permanently in place, it's almost an overhaul of this organization that for years you had an old guard coach and Tom Thibodeau as your head coach and your president of basketball operations and an old guard GM and Scott Layden. This this organization and their style of play and how they acquired talent was not modern. And now they are a modern, innovative offense and they've unlocked Andrew Wiggins. Now, is this going to be him for the whole year? I have no idea. But I'm genuinely, this is awesome. This is genuinely awesome. And watching Minnesota play is really, really fun to do. Towns is a beast. Robert Covington is awesome. Andrew Wiggins, I don't want to say he's taken the leap. I just want to say that he's been unlocked. Very rarely do you see a player who, this is what, his sixth year? He was drafted in 2014. Yeah, 14-15, 15-16, 16-17, 17-18. 18, 19, 19, 20, his sixth year. Wow. And after five years of below average play and getting a huge nine-figure contract that before the season looked to be one of the three worst in the league, Andrew Wiggins is what he was always supposed to be. And that's awesome to see. Now, ending our basketball discussion there, one thing I wanted to talk about from the NFL... Just because of its timeliness and watching it happen last night, here again on After the Final Whistle, I am your host, Brad Clear. The unfortunate and ugly incident last night with the Steelers and the Browns with Miles Garrett, uh, Mason Rudolph, uh, Morky's Pouncey, Larry and Gonjobi, of course, we've all seen it at this point. We've seen the punishment that was doled out, $250,000 in fines to both the Steelers and Browns organizations. An indefinite suspension at minimum encompassing the rest of the regular season and the playoffs for Myles Garrett, three games for Pouncey, a game for Larry Ogunjobi, and likely a fine coming for Mason Rudolph. Now, there's been lots of takes on this situation, but to me, it's very simple. It doesn't matter that Mason Rudolph started it or instigated it. Myles Garrett escalated the situation to an extreme that it never Needed to nor should it have been escalated to very simple. He recognizes it. He's apologized for it everyone recognizes that it went too far and This was the punishment that had to be doled out again. There could have been a much worse Uh result and consequence of the helmet throw So his suspension was warranted And for Pouncy, I think it was warranted. You know, there's some people who think it wasn't now Fully, he was justified in standing up for and defending his quarterback. But, I mean, he kicked a player in the head while they were down and punched a player while they were down. I get it. Again, he's defending his quarterback. That's fine. But, again, that was a bit too far. So I get the three games there. Ogunjobi, one game. I I can get that too. I mean, running in and blindside, knocking down Mason Rudolph. He didn't need to do that. He shouldn't have done that. So I get that one-game suspension. I thought, personally, I thought Mason Rudolph should have gotten a one-game suspension just for the fact that he was the instigator of the situation. Again, it doesn't matter that he was the instigator and not Garrett. Garrett's actions were completely inexcusable. You cannot excuse those actions under any circumstance. But he did instigate it, so I thought, rather than whatever the fine ends up being, potentially he could have... I thought a one-game suspension would have been warranted for him. But nonetheless, it was an ugly incident. And that's the sort of thing that just can't happen. So it's good that there was swift action from the league office very quickly. And that was substantial and justified and sufficient for all involved parties. All right. So moving away there, um, let's touch on it real quick. Actually, let's keep it going a little bit. Let's do another NFL topic here. Uh, The AFC wild card, this is something to me that's been very interesting at this point in the season and obviously for the rest of the season as the race goes. So at this point, even though Kansas City is one game up on Oakland, it's pretty clear to me what we're going to have is the first four teams in the AFC. We'll have New England, we'll have Baltimore, we'll have Kansas City, and we'll have Houston. That's pretty much what it's going to be, right? And then after that, the wild card field gets very interesting. You have Buffalo, who started pretty well, has since slipped a little bit, my confidence in them has lowered, and they have a very tough schedule the rest of the year. You then have Oakland, who is 5 and 4, one game back of Can- or half game back of Kansas City, who has a very easy schedule the rest of the season. You have Indianapolis, who really kind of lost it for themselves by losing to Pittsburgh and losing to the Dolphins. And then very sneakily down towards the bottom, you have the Tennessee Titans, led by Ryan Tannehill at 5-5. Five and five. You then have Jacksonville with Nick Foles coming back. And the Cleveland Browns, as I just mentioned, they're 4-6. and six. They play in their next three games, Miami, Pittsburgh again, and Cincinnati. So, very well, it could end up that the Cleveland Browns are 7-6. and six. So, to me, I look at this race, just based off of the schedule they have the rest of the season for the Oakland Raiders, I think the Oakland Raiders are getting one of these wild card spots. I really do. And for Buffalo, as much as I would like to see them make the playoffs with how good their defense is, Josh Allen has taken strides. Devin Singletary is good. John Brown has been great. Cole Beasley has been great for them as well. I just don't see it with the schedule they have the rest of the season. And it's going to be a very tight race, but I think Indianapolis may have lost it for themselves by losing to Pittsburgh and Miami. That aforementioned Buffalo schedule was waiting for it to load. Got Miami and Denver the next two weeks, but after that, week 13 to 16 is brutal for this team. The Cowboys, the Ravens, the Steelers, and the Patriots, and then finish the season with the Jets. That's a pretty difficult schedule to end the season for Buffalo. For Oakland, I just mentioned their easy schedule the rest of the year. They have Cincinnati, the Jets, Kansas City, obviously a very tough game, but could be a pivotal game. Tennessee, Jacksonville, the Chargers, and the Broncos it is reasonable to think that the Raiders may only lose one more game the rest of the season. Now, will they? Probably not, but it is very possible based off of that schedule. I look at this situation now, and dependent on how the Browns can do the rest of the season, I mentioned those three games. After that, they have Cincinnati against, so that's four winnable games, Baltimore, which is probably a loss and then Arizona there is definitely a path to Cleveland being 9-7 and seven to end the season, even with all the turmoil and bad play calling that they've encountered so far so I definitely think Oakland is getting one of those two spots, but looking at that last spot If Buffalo can rack up wins, if Pittsburgh can get key wins, if Indianapolis can win winnable games, if Tennessee and Tannehill can keep doing what they're doing. I've said it before. I like Tennessee, their talent on both sides of the ball. It's just the quarterback position that's been the problem. Jacksonville, if Nick Foles can be the Nick Foles that he was for the Eagles for the last two years, and I just mentioned the Browns very well could end up being 9-7, and this is going to be a really exciting race for the wild card spots in the AFC. But again, I think John Gruden and the Raiders, the only thing standing in the way of a wild card and playoff spot for them is themselves. Because that schedule, they control their own destiny with that schedule. And with that, that will be the end of this episode here of After the Final Whistle here on WSOE89.3 FM or Apple Podcasts or podcast.com. Again, I'm your host, Brad Clear. Um, Be sure to stay tuned here on podcast.com, Apple Podcasts, and WSOE for more episodes. Shout out to Luka Doncic, Pascal Siakam, and Frank Nielakina's defense. And shout out to the Cleveland Cavaliers as well. Again, I'm your host, Brad Clear. And as always, goodbye and good night.